Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. In this episode, I'd like to welcome Priscilla McKinney. She is the CEO and Mama Bird, as she says, of Little Bird Marketing. Little Bird Marketing is an award-winning digital marketing agency specializing in content marketing, lead generation, branding, and design. She is also the host of two different podcasts. And I'd like to welcome Priscilla. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Darshan. I've been looking forward to this. We've been trying to get together for a little while, uh, but it's very strange, I got to say, to be on the other side of the podcast studio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you're an expert at this. I don't think it should be a problem at all. So, No, I think two professionals. We could could muddle through it, I'm sure. I'm sure we can. (laughs) You have said that you have miraculously found yourself into the most ideal place in the world, which is at the intersection of marketing, business, and market research. Tell me about your journey on how you got here, maybe some of the aha moments or epiphanies you've had that put you at this intersection that you're in love with. Well, I grew up overseas, first of all. And secondly, I ended up in a degree of cultural anthropology. So I think you can tell by that, by being multilingual and living other places and just understanding what it is to be human and, you know, how these humans tick, you know, what is it that makes us uh, connect and why we're so social. And it's also like, an interesting transition from understanding how we group up and how we group think and how we individualize and, you know, just like the intersection of all those things. To me, that was very interesting about humans. And so I think the big aha was, hey, I want something in my career that really keeps me at the center of curiosity about humans and how we think. So in terms of marketing and market research and all those things, we talk about path to purchase. So we're looking at lead funnels. I mean, do they exist? You know, humans don't go step one, step two, step three, step four. And we, you know, now people have realized this. But, you know, in terms of marketing and marketing messaging, I really, the big aha for me is that I want to be at the center of what humans are doing and how we can unpack what humans are doing and then make that good for brands. But while we're making it good for brands, guess what? We could make it good for humans too. Yeah, I think that's important. In fact, branding in essence is humanizing a brand, is it not? You know, it really should be. Um, (laughs) A lot of them aren't, (laughs) but it really should be. And, you know, sometimes people even humanize a brand, but it's not necessarily for the sole purpose of serving that human. And so I think the spectrum in there is where brands are really struggling right now. Like how much can we really be looking at our data, right? Be driven by data. And how much can we be driven by the needs and the wants and the desires and the good of the humans who use our service? There's no black and white answer. So I don't like it when people go out there and brands have to be, as soon as someone says something like that, I'm kind of (laughs) out. It's very complicated. We need to make profit. We make profit and that's how we care for the other humans who work for us. So (laughs) there's a real spectrum there, but I think the interesting and really juicy conversations in the intersection of, you know, branding and marketing and messaging and market research and business, how to really be good at business. All of those are in in the middle of still being curious about humans and how they're going to act and interact and what brands can do to maximize that knowledge. What are some of the inhibitors or 
pitfalls that uh, brands have in terms of trying to become more humanized? Well, sometimes I think the biggest problem is that people look outside and try to mimic other brands. And so a brand may have humanized or maybe gone a little bit, let, let's say they go more with the sustainability message, or maybe they go with, you know, a mental health message, or maybe they go with, you know, we're a B Corp or, or they go with diversity or, you know, there's just a million things you could be doing. And a lot of times they see a company be successful with a particular branding message or a particular style or a particular brand voice. And so they say, let's adopt that. And I think that's the big Biggest danger is when people mimic and adopt. Instead, it needs to come from your own core values. It needs to come from your own, you know, a passion for what you're doing. And so when brand and brand voice and brand messaging and, you know, goals are set from the inside out, I think that's the win. I think it's interesting what you're saying. So basically, brands shouldn't become wannabes. They should actually figure out their own purpose, their own uh, goals, and really be authentic to that. So how do you get a brand to recognize or, or do that? First of all, my byline on LinkedIn used to be, and I change it quite often, but it used to be annoying truth teller powered by my husband's homemade bread. And I think how you do that is you be a slightly annoying truth teller. And you know, when someone comes to us as an agency and they want to hand us money, look, I like money. I'm, I'm going to be really honest. I'm not in this for nonprofit. <laughs> I've got real goals. And so they come to us and they want to hand us money to do something, it is important to be able to stop them in their tracks and say, that sounds great. I love money. I, 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 I know how to cash this check. I know that's a throwback, but still <laughs> um, say, but why, why would we do this? And also when it comes to, you know, really getting into steps and starting to message or starting to strategize, it's also being honest to tell a client, I'm already asleep. What is going on here? So we use a kind of a funny and maybe for hyperbole, a extreme example of, if someone wants me to put copy on a website since 1977, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> like nobody cares about you and your story. You know what people love to talk about and you know what people love to think about themselves. They are the most important person on the planet. And the brands that win are the brands who actually start building brand purpose, brand voicing, brand messaging, campaigning, everything around their most ideal client. So that's really, you know, no matter what it is we're doing day in and day out here, I would say number one, our strategy is based on persona development. And that requires some selflessness. It says not us. We're not that important. The most ideal client buyer is. And how can we help them? What's keeping them up on Sunday night? What's getting them going and excited on Monday? What are the things they're too embarrassed to admit? What are the things that are, you know, persistent problems they can't seem to solve? What are newly emerging problems that are really freaking them out? So starting with that empathy for your most ideal buyer, that's how we can actually move the right direction. Are there certain uh, brands that you think are doing this really well that you can give us an example of? Well, I'll give you an example that might seem a little little bit bizarre, but I think it was really, you know, fought on. It was several years ago, far before COVID and Netflix wanted to do a change in their plan and they wanted to do a change in their pricing. They did it. And I, at right in this moment, I can't remember the specifics of it, but there was a bit of revolt, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. What consumers got instead was a letter from the CEO saying, you know, I was wrong. We made this decision and this is what we thought. Here's why. But I don't think we totally paid attention. And you know what? We're going to go back and we're going to change it. We're going backwards. So it wasn't a 
well, too bad. You don't like it, you know, <laughs> moving on. And I think that this, to me, signaled that this brands cared about the reaction from their customers and they didn't just leverage their unique place in the market at that time because now you think oh streaming services dime a dozen but when this incident happened it was not a dime a dozen and Netflix could have pressed and gone forward with their pricing increase and gone forward with their changes to the plans and really just made people just eat it and they didn't and I think for me, I think it's in those moments when brands show that humanity. And to me, that was a lot of humility coming from a CEO. I think that was really showcasing how well that brand had understood their position to serve their client. And of course, they're going to make money. You know, of course, they're there. And obviously, the reason of, you know, going through the machinations and probably a lot of time spent in, you know, rooms trying to figure out what was the right pricing, what was this, but somehow they got it wrong and being able to say, we got it wrong. That was really powerful, I think. What's interesting, because I mean, since then, I think they've actually had a couple of price increases and they haven't had a revolt or anything. So it sounds like they, they've also learned to communicate it properly moving forward on how they're going to do that. Right. And I think they've also learned how to deliver value. If you think about, you know, to go a step deeper, you know, they didn't rest on their laurels with we're a streaming service. We're just going to, you know, uh, change from sending it to you in the mail to, hey, you can get it anytime you want. They've completely diversified. They've collabed with, you know, other people. They've collabed with Roku. They've collabed with a lot of different studios. And so they've been able to see the bigger picture at the same time. And so I love that what you pointed out that it's not that they couldn't up the price is that, that that was not a good time to up the price. And so they didn't see it as black and white. Well, if we can't do that, then we're not. No, they're like, this isn't our time. So let's just rethink it. Let's backtrack. And then there'll be a better time later on. And I think that that's also a very abundance thinking as opposed to scarcity thinking. And I think when brands get in that scarcity thinking, like if we don't do this to the client right now, if we don't press you know, the consumer, then we might not get our chance. But I feel like them stepping back and going, we'll get our chance. Let's just, let's prove more value and then we'll be able to up our prices. So this might be a good time to transition to something that you invented. It's called a SOAR system. And maybe you can tell me what exactly is the SOAR system first? Well, before I talk about us, I would say I know that people who are trying to drive revenue in companies are overwhelmed. <laughs> right? Our most ideal client really loves their brand, really is, even if they're not the owner, which most often they're not, our ideal client is high up enough to have the authority and the autonomy to make decisions, but they also go to bed thinking and worrying about the bottom line of their company. That's ideal for us, right? This is someone who has loyalty. They're bought in and they feel like they're a part of the problem when something's wrong and they feel like they're a part of the solution when something's right. And that is ideal to me. But I really feel for those people because they have a million voices coming at them in marketing. Do this. This company did this. Look at this. Mimic this. You know, and oh, we're on LinkedIn. Oh, LinkedIn doesn't work at all. Oh, Facebook's a place to go. Oh, you know, that's dying. And it, it's just, it's so overwhelming. And I'm a CEO of a digital agency and I'm overwhelmed with the amount of changes that happen in digital marketing. So I can't imagine if that's not your forte, if that's not your focus, what that world is. It can be very disconcerting, right? So what I did was look at that real problem and say, but what would really help them? Like what would make them start sleeping at night? And we do joke around here that we're not really a digital content lead generation company. We say a lot of times that we're a sleep improvement agency. And you know, I those 
those people. Like it's precious. These are our lives. We need to be able to sleep and know that somebody has it handled and that there's a plan. So the source system was birthed out of that. And I felt like I met a lot of people who were doing a lot of good things in marketing, but they weren't doing them in the right order, or they didn't have any system in place to know what should I do next? You know, I had a lot of CEOs tell me they hired this amazing CMO or a marketing director, whatever the new you know title is you, you want to put on there. And they were so excited, like, I can't wait to work for you. Like, and then they get there the first day and they say, what do you want me to do? Whoa. If I've got to tell you what to do to lead our marketing, we're in trouble already, <laughs> you know? So, you know, people might know a thing or two about marketing, but they didn't have a system. They didn't know how to come in and say, let me understand the strategy of this company. And then let me organize that into a way where we can actually have a firm and sustainable lead generation system. So that's the problem and what we solve. You know, what I created is sore and anybody can crib from this. You don't ever have to work with me or talk with me again <laughs> if you don't like me. But you can crib this and I guarantee you it will work for any program that you put in place. So S stands for strategy. Get your strategy done. Absolutely stop working on any content, on any marketing, pull the plug on campaigns, stop and get to your strategy. And your strategy to me has to be completely based, like I mentioned before, in a true and deep understanding of your most ideal client. So ask those tough questions, put yourself in their shoes, do some research if you need to. Hello, I know a lot of good researchers. I'm not a researcher, but find out what they want, get feedback, even, even just as simple as interviewing some of your best clients you've ever had. Tell me why, what really made the difference, you know, and really seeing it from their perspective, because too often we see it from our perspective and we think that we're successful for certain reasons, but that's not why they're buying at all. And so we need to just get a fresh perspective and get strategy done. The next thing I say is once we have the strategy and that's keywords and hashtags and persona development and business goals and KPIs, we're going to measure just like that whole shebang, get that done, get that on some kind of a project management board and get it organized. Everything that we're going to commit to do has to be in an organization. And people joke around with us that our checklists have checklists, right? <laughs> but it's true. Um, and you know, when someone says, we need to write a blog, a blog to me is not one action. That's 52 actions. And so we don't write a blog without making sure that all of those things happen from keywording, testing the title, to looking at SEO ranking, to maybe looking at collaboration within the industry, or how do we get more people pulled in here, to great graphics, to maybe micro videos, to once it's even done, let's say it's like, yes, we love this blog, publish it. We are still not done. We have to promote that for the next year. It's great, solid, evergreen content that it took us a long time to create. So we're going to get a lot of mileage out of it. So that's the S and the O, we're going to organize it. And if you say, we're going to do this thing and I can't get it organized on a board, like it's going to just have to live in someone's head, we are not doing it. And then the accountability is, I don't care if it's six minutes after the strategy meeting or six weeks or six months, somebody says in a meeting, I think we should go to this meeting or I think we should be on radio. So this is my kind of come on voice. Right? And I say, that's an interesting idea. Again, if I'm the agency and they're talking to me, I love money. I will do, I will create new stuff before I do that. Why? <laughs> and before I do that, the accountability piece is, does it fit our strategy and does it lend itself? Is it able, do we have the bandwidth to get it organized? We know exactly when it's due, who's going to do it and what the steps are. If the answer to either one of those is no in accountability, we are not doing that. And we like to give people the power to start saying no. 
to marketing opportunities. And that's the sweet spot when we start focusing in. And just the last one is the R, which is repeatability. And of course, that old adage about, you know, half of our marketing budget is wasted. We just don't know which half. So I know that everybody knows (laughs) that that quote, but that's what we want to do. Not everything can be measured. We understand that. But what we want to do is make sure that when we choose the plan next year, that we are looking directly at the measurements and saying, what do we want to double down on? And what thing are we never doing again? That did not work. So that's S-O-A-R. So just take it and go back to your own marketing plan and say, have I done the strategy? Have I organized this? Before we do the work, do not do any of the work. The whole year needs to be organized out. I need to know exactly what's happening over this next year. Not that we couldn't have something, oh, Priscilla, I'm very serendipitous and something happens. Great. Something happens again in accountability. Serendipity comes in and someone gives you an opportunity. Great. Is it a part of our strategy? Let's do it. Can we organize it? Let's organize it real quick. But if it doesn't, we're going to cut it out. And then we're going to find out what we should repeat. You know, I think that's interesting. There's lots of things that you packed in there. So I'm going to kind of break up a little bit. But one of them is, let's just talk about strategy. I think oftentimes people, when they come with a strategy, they think they can't deviate or can't change or update or modify. So what's the proper way to really think about creating a strategy and updating it? And how should people be looking at it properly? Oh, that's such a good question, Darshan, because this is the thing is that people think that strategy or like strategic limitations are going to limit the company or limit the creative. And that is not true. In fact, I managed 20 creatives. It's like herding cats sometimes, right? But if we did not have the boundaries of the strategy of the company, it could go anywhere. Well, nobody wants to live in a world like that. And experts have said this time and time again, real creativity happens within boundaries. It's not a free for all. It's not I'm just out to the wind. No, even, you know, my, and my Apple watch tells me let's have a moment of mindfulness. And then it asked me a question. I don't know if you've experienced this. Be like, imagine the da, 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 da. I'm like, okay, for a minute, I'll imagine that. And at the end, it gave me a message the other day. It said, and that is creativity. And I was like, oh my gosh, that, I totally agree with this Apple watch, <laughs> you know, because when you start putting some governors on for yourself, all of a sudden creativity starts, well, what if we could do this? And what if we could do this? And yet it stays completely within the bounds. And so if I'm not being clear, what I mean to say there is that the persona development is not intended to be stringent. It is intended to say, but is it alterns? Is it meaningful to this person? And then the fun begins. Well, if that's meaningful, what else could be meaningful? And I'll use a good example. We're trying to do a sponsorship right now with a client. And I know who's going to be at this particular conference. And we wanted, they're willing to spend money. But I'm like, no, we can't spend money on the normal thing. Like we are at the registration desk or we are the lanyard sponsor. And I hate to, you know, take away from any event planner who's like, that's a great sponsorship. Yeah, it's a great sponsorship if you can make it meaningful. But what I did a lot of times with conferences and things, I come back and I say, yeah, but let me think about this person. They are stuck at a meeting that like I start getting empathetic about the ideal buyer, right? And so I suggested this company, I'm like, why don't you suggest to this company that we actually bring in an ice cream cart in the middle of the conference, kind of a nice afternoon break. And we get a chance to chat and do something that not just like, let's go grab a martini or let's go grab another cup of coffee or, you know, something like this. Like, how can we interrupt the pattern? And so instead of having to be like, who's going to be there and who, what, what's their message? Like, I'm not worried in the morning about the strategy because I already got that done. So because of that, I have a lot more bandwidth for me and for my team to think about the creative new thing that nobody's done before. And it's in that space that you can really win as a brand. I think what I'm hearing, and please uh, feel free to correct me, is basically a strategy is having a plan. It may not be, you know, the exact plan that, that may work or not, but more than anything, it's a plan. 
-hmm. that's based on existing knowledge and information. That's and right. that based on that plan, once you organize it, then that's where the accountability comes in. And that's when you know whether the strategy is good or not. But other than that, if you're just trying a bunch of tactics, right, then that don't fit a strategy, then you're not going to really get good accountability and feedback. Is that what I'm hearing? Totally perfect. Perfectly said. And I think that that word that you just said, that tactics, and people ask me for the tactics and the tips and the tricks and those kinds of things. And I'm like, the tip and the trick and the tactic is go back to the beginning and do the hard work. So <laughs> how's that for a, a, a time hacker for you? But it really does, you know, save you so much time, you know, later on. And I, I will say, you know, one other danger, you, you asked me a really good question at the beginning, what is the danger of what clients do or brands do? And I would say the next danger is that they hire us to do strategy or they do this strategy on their own, which we have freebies on our website that they can do some of this strategy on their own. If you've got the bandwidth to do it, do it. But then they go and they take this persona work. And I talk sometimes even with clients that have done this and invested in this, and it's in a drawer somewhere or worse, they don't even know where it is. And I cannot just say more plainly to people, if you do strategic work and you don't get it organized into a system where you're dealing with it every day, there's not a persona. I mean, literally I have like a stack of my clients personas right next to me, because if I'm going to write a social media post, granted it's two sentences, I am not going to write that without referring back to that paper. And you have to let go of your ego. I do not know this persona better than the work that we did in the strategy. I'm going to go back to that strategy document and I'm going to write these two sentences. These two sentences are important to the world. And so whether it's short or whether I'm going to write a five pager, it doesn't matter. I always have to come back to that strategy. There's two areas I want to delve in a little bit deeper. One is empathy. You've talked about empathy. And I, and I agree with you. But I'm curious, how do you actually get leaders in a company or even a brand to become more empathetic? You know, that's really interesting. I think that people don't mean to be holding on to their brand so tightly. But a lot of times when I see signs that they're not being very empathetic to their user or to their customer or to their potential client, it's not really because they don't care or they don't, you know, that like they're not bad people. They just have been so fixated on either the revenue or, you know, the work. They're usually that's a signal that they have lower bandwidth inside their company. And that is something I look for because with lower bandwidth, we just like it's very hard to get creative things done. One famous quote, I'm sure it was a general before him, but Vince Lombardi kind of made it famous. He said that fatigue makes cowards of us all. And I think when brands are worn out and people inside the brands are worn out, they don't do the something extra for people. And so I would say the first thing is when I see empathy lacking, instead of berating someone and pointing out all the ways they haven't been empathetic, I usually come back and say, do you guys need a break? Like, do you need a re Like, are you just too in it? Are you just so close to this? And all you can think about is that cape like, how many sales did we get today? Or how am I going to get this sales you know, department to do this? Or I got to hire four other people. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You need some bandwidth in order to be empathetic. And we all know this in just as a cultural anthropologist, I'll tell you, if you're fighting to survive, you're not over on the more altruistic spectrum of feelings and actions. And so instead of saying, oh, these people just aren't, don't care about their clients and say, what can we free up? What space can be, what can we start saying no to? Let, that, that's not strategy, gone. And it's very hard sometimes for them to let, but we've always done that. Yeah, but we don't know that that's successful. And also that's eating up our time and keeping us from getting things done. In a lot of ways, the irony is, is that I have to be empathetic to the client in order to get them to come along on that journey and say, let's identify why 
We are so turned in and focused only on ourselves. And let's try and be kind to ourselves and to our company and to our employees and to anybody who's on this committee or trying to steer this revenue and content direction. Let's open it up and let's give them a break because that's what's going to be needed for new thinking and truly to have empathy for our client. Mm -hmm. The other thing you've talked about is personas. What tips or steps would you recommend that people Mm -hmm. do to develop personas? And maybe even before that, tell me why they're so important. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked that. But also, I give this information away for free. I, you know, I get paid a lot of money to keynote or to workshop about it. But on our website, littlebirdmarketing.com, we have resources. And I have two resources that are really important and they're totally free on personas. One is a full pillar page. Like, what is a persona? Why do I need Like, it'll go through everything for you and make you go, oh, uh," like for you, have that aha moment for your listener, right? And then we have another one that's more of a workbook. Like, sit down with your crew and now start thinking about it. And I really suggest, even if you're going to hire someone, you know, later, or if it's something of interest, still try and DIY it at the beginning, just to kind of get the feel and understand what's going on. It's like, I love this premise of your podcast. And this is that, you know, when you have that aha for real, you can't unsee it. It's a pattern you see, and now you can't go back. And I guarantee you any step someone takes on the persona journey it will change them, right? My advice, and there's a lot of things online that are interesting tools and things like that, but there's no substitute for sitting down, quiet place, maybe a couple of team members, but doing the hard work and asking yourself these questions without something else going on and without, you know, just take the wearable watch off, taking to put your phone on silent. And even if it's only 20 minutes, I don't care. People's like, it's kind of people take this persona look all or nothing. I'm either going to do a three-day workshop or I'm doing nothing. Just do 20 minutes and see if anything comes from it. And if something comes from it, then do another 20 minutes. So that would be my suggestion to your you know, listeners, something they can take with them and think a little bit more about who is it that they serve best, right? Who needs them the most? Who is willing to pay for their services? And why are they buying them? What's going on in their world? And you would be surprised because when you start thinking about that, sometimes you can even get on a persona to finally understand what are the things that happen a day, a week, a month, a year before they had develop a need for whatever your service is. And you might identify an interesting path that nobody had seen before, but you've got to take your brain offline. You got to not be sitting at your desk and you need to go actually put some time and effort there. But it sounds like maybe they should also have some conversations with their customers and prior to developing the personas. I mean, to get a deeper understanding of what drives them, how they made the decision and you know how they're using the product or service. Is that what you're saying? A hundred percent. I think that's a very smart piece of developing personas. I will say say though, any good market researcher will now chime in and say, and beware of the (laughs) self-report. So it it is more a qualitative piece of it, you know, having good conversations. You know, you said in a comment that you hired me because blah, blah, blah. But is that really what you think of me at night? Like at night, like, what are you, what are you thinking? Like take the conversation less professional and a little bit more personal. And I think you'll learn more, but I wouldn't only base my personas on actual, you know, interviews with current clients. You have to, first of all, make sure that you've identified who are the most ideal clients, right? Because we all have clients who are not ideal and we're trying to get rid of. And that's a really good process for any business too. So we don't want to take outliers or unideal clients. We want to make sure we're focusing on who do we serve well that we can like get this flywheel process going with. And so we want to focus on that. But also you have to remember that some companies need to completely 
completely change their focus. They need a new ideal client persona, one they're not even serving yet. So you won't be able to go and interview an existing client because maybe it's more aspirational. You know, you need to pivot. You know, there's a different person out there. Your company has now changed, matured, pivoted, whatever it is. And you'll need to actually completely change the persona without having experience with them. So that can be tricky. So there's no one place for anybody to start, but the idea of a hundred percent, do not leave out wonderful, wonderful customers who've been with you for years do not leave out actually having a solid conversation with them. Sure. And you can also have conversations with prospects that may not be your customers too. So that's for sure. also a possibility. For sure. Uh, I'm curious, is there a, an ideal number of personas people should initially start off with? I mean, obviously you can have many, but I'm just wondering at some point, if someone's really new to this, is there a certain number that works well that they can start working with and learning how this to do it properly and then add on more personas later? Uh, Yeah, 100%. Some people like to go ahead and write all of them out. I think the most I've ever done through workshop sessions is like seven, right? And it's very typical. I I I had a client last year, they had one. Let's go, if we get this one, we're done. So there really is, again, you know, not one size fits all. But I do say a good best practice is that if you are starting a new, more disciplined marketing focus, then really 2% personas is all you should focus on for the year. Now that doesn't mean don't build all four of them, go ahead and build all four of them, but then identify for your agency or for your marketing team. But these two are the most important. We're going to spend our money on these two. Now the other two might come to us and we need to know how to talk to them and treat them and we need to understand them. So it's very worthwhile effort to do all of your personas, but that doesn't mean that you're spending marketing focus or money on them. And so either one per year or two, and And then obviously as the company matures or also depending on how much bandwidth and money you're going to put into your marketing budget for the year, that's going to dictate how many personas you really can handle within one year. I'm going to shift gears on you. You've talked about turning chaos into clarity. What does that mean? And how do you do that? Well, we know that a lot of people are doing what we would also call maybe duct tape marketing or spaghetti marketing or patchwork marketing. <laughs> or, you know, we're doing a little bit of this and a little bit of this. Let's throw this on the wall, see how it sticks, you know? And it's just a constantly this, let's try this, let's try this. I don't know. Well, is this working? Is that work? You know, and so to me, that's a very chaotic way to live. We don't really have in that like a sense of, but we tried that, but we tried that but we didn't try it within a system. And so when you don't try things within a system, you don't have an apples to apples comparison of what's working and what's not working and you're wearing people out. And so when I say bringing chaos into clarity, what I'm saying is I'm going to show somebody at the end of, you know, two or three days that we've worked with them at the very beginning, they're going to see in the next 30 days, they're going to see the entire project management board come alive with an entire annual project, like down to all the checklists, you know, like this is clarity. So if you say, what are we going to do that? Look on the board in midnight, the person wakes up and goes, what's going on with it? Look on the board. It's all real time. We know what we're doing ahead of time. Right now I'm working on, um, let's see, we're recording this in March and I'm working on a project for a client for November and October, November, kind of uh, two different dates. And so you need to be able to, you know, put things in order so that you're that far worked ahead, because that's also the space where really cool creativity comes. Everybody knows that, Hey, we're about ready to go to this conference. You know what we should have done? We should have bought blah, blah, blah. Oh, we can't get them now. (laughs) And that is a killer for brands. That's a killer for creativity. So you got to be able to get worked ahead. And that's what I mean by, you know, taking chaos to clarity. You've been in the digital marketing space for quite some time. What are common mistakes or misperceptions 
that often clients come with that you say, you know, I wish they really just knew this about digital marketing so that we can have a much better first conversation. Well, I wish that people really understood that there's no one thing, that digital marketing is a million little things and they all add up, but you have to have patience, right? So what we're talking about when we talk about digital marketing, you can go out and pay to play. That's fine. Anybody can do that for you. But what we're trying to do is get brands to win with serious organic wins that nobody can take away from them. And that takes time. So one thing I wish is that I wish they understood we need to be more patient. I can say to a client, look, this is going to take six to 18 months for traction. I say it, I'm like, look, I'm going to tell you something very unpopular. And I'm, I'm going to remind you of the thing I said in, in our onboarding. And that is, and I say it again, and nobody really wants to hear it. But if we are really doing the right thing for digital, if we do it the right way and build it with the right persona in mind, the keywords that hashtags like everything else and they're patient for it, it is such a crazy win that then you can't turn off. So patience is one thing. And the other thing I wish they knew is that I wish they knew that you can't also hire even a firm like me and have it solved. Your team needs to come along the journey. And so that's your sales. Like we got to get the salespeople talking to the marketing people. We've got to get, you know, the salespeople digitally transformed. They need to become influencers on social media, whether, or even especially in the B2B space. Like we need those people to take the onus to use the content that we're creating, that we're carefully crafting, and we'll hand it right to their team. But their team can make an exponential win from the content that we're creating. And so those are the two things. I wish they'd be a little bit more patient. And then number two, I wish they'd help understand that marketing is not a siloed event, that now marketing is, everybody is marketer. Everybody sells on your team. Everybody can be a thought leader. Everybody needs to be digitally transformed. Everybody needs to be out there in the space, letting the brand be seen. When you say patience, how long are you really talking? talking about to have patience to see digital marketing that's emphasizing organic to actually start seeing the benefits of it. Yeah, I do think six six to 18 months is a really good rule of thumb. Some companies have done themselves pretty big favors over the year by really keeping their websites up to date. And I can do a quick three-minute scan of their website to know what their grade is. And are we going to be in trouble? Or is this going to be quicker? Or is this going to take a long time? So there's a couple of things we can do on the outset to gauge just how much longer or how much quicker this is going to be. So that matters if, if, if their website's, uh, you know, hella broken, <laughs> we got to have a different conversation first. But the other piece of it is also what's the space that they're in? Is it incredibly noisy or not? And so that's something that, again, you know, people throw, everybody has their opinion. Oh, we got that done in three months. Yeah, but you're in a completely different industry than this client is. And so I hate it when people compare and contrast those kinds of things, because you really have to take a company for this and evaluate it based on the soup that it's swimming in. What do you see on the horizon that you think is going to impact digital marketing one way or the other? Well, cookies are a big thing, right? So it's kind of, we went from once upon a time, you had to go to Madison Avenue and buy an ad in order to be seen. And then it was this democratization of access to the consumer. And as Guy Kawasaki said, social media is God's gift to the entrepreneur, right? So now we don't have to pay ad execs to actually get an ad done. Now everybody, everybody's a marketer, right? Um, and it feels like that a lot. But then people were able to go direct to consumer, like all of these platforms, all of these online features, you know, it's like, we don't have to go through businesses necessarily. 
But then also then a bunch of people jumped into that and it got very noisy and people spent a lot of money. I mean, I've had clients that are spending a crazy amount of money and I go look, I'm like, well, what are those results? But they don't know how to track the results or look at the return on investment. So there's been a lot of money wasted also. But with Advent, you know, a cookie-less world where people have to actually grant the privacy, they have to open themselves up to be tracked or open themselves up to be seen online. We're not getting all of those little tags or cookies or breadcrumbs, I think is almost a better way of saying it, to know hey, Priscilla's been on three bathing suit sites. I should go market my bathing suit to her, right? That was the old world. We could see all of that and now go rush out and show Priscilla a bathing suit ad. Well, now companies are going to have to rethink that because they're not going to get that trackable data in most cases. And so without that, we're kind of pushed back to the other world where we kind of, now we're the conglomerate. We have to kind of go to the masses again. There's something along the spectrum. Again, it's not black and white. We're not going back to the old way of doing things, but it is putting a real wrinkle in a lot of people's online go-to-market strategy because they're not able to just use people's passive information about where they've been, what they've been doing, what keywords they've been using online. It's a much smaller pool now of people who are granting that access. And I know you've seen it. You've gone on a website. And if you love this website and you've worked with them forever and it comes up with their cookie and they're like, sure, do, because I want you to improve my experience. But if I don't know this company, uh, no, you are not going to see what I'm doing You know, as I'm surfing here. So that's the new world that everybody needs to be really thinking of. I'm not saying it's a dark foreboding, like it's all over. It just means that we have to come back to our strategies and rethink it. And I really think that there's going to be a better understanding that the time needs to be spent on brand awareness. And people don't like to hear that either because that's not a direct return on investment. But I truly believe that unseen is unsold. And if your brand is not being seen repetitively and in the right context, then you will not be able to win in the new new era. It sounds like the emphasis is may shift a little bit more towards organic from paid with these changes that you're talking about. I really think it is. And I think we're already seeing this, the signs. There have been a lot of shots over the bow that digital ad spend is not what it used to be. And that's even with very, very skilled people understanding keywords and negative keywords and looking for demographic information and also filtering it down into very small niche groups and all this kind of stuff. But it's not experiences. It's, you know, heyday, it's golden days. So brands are going to really have to rethink how they go to market. And I really believe that the investment is in in their people. How do we get these people to be able to go out, like I said, exponentially? If you if you have 20 people who work for you, guess what? You've got 20 sales reps. If you have 100, you have 100. You just cannot underestimate the power of individuals who work for you talking about the brand. Is there an area of digital marketing you'd like to delve in further? And if so, why? You know, I think I've always wanted to be more in the influencer space. And that is not something that we do. But last night I was talking with a good friend of mine over at 3M. He runs the McGuire projects. So it's all car aficionados and he activates their trade shows during the year, which can be hundreds. And he was talking about how great it was to be out again, talking to all their influencers. And whenever I talk with him, and sometimes I'll share a stage with him or something is Tony D'Amato over at 3M. I just, I get really excited and I love that. It's not my world. And I think you really need to be an expert in order to work in it. So I would definitely hire that out if I needed it. But it's one of those pieces of digital marketing that I really enjoy and it still intrigues me. And I think it's it totally speaks to the power of the individual. And that to me, that's still comforting in a world where people you know think that, 
business success comes from just becoming a big conglomerate and throwing a lot of money into marketing. That's not it. There still is a lot of, you know, base movements. And obviously I'm a cultural anthropologist. So like the famous quote from Margaret Mead that never underestimate what a committed community of people can do, because that's really the only thing that's ever changed <laughs> the course of history, period. So that's kind of my thinking of a Margaret Meadism. I think that's comforting. So I kind of like that influencer marketing and also influencer marketing. I don't mean like Kardashian influencer. I mean, like people really in love with a particular thing. And I think that car aficionado is one of those really interesting ones. They do things for brands because they just love the brands because the brands have done something added to their lives. And I love that conversation. Who in the world of digital marketing would you love to have lunch with and why? I do love me some Michael Brenner. We've talked and uh, he's been on my podcast a couple of times and we really see eye to eye on a lot of things. But here's my perfect lunch. It's Andy Crestadina from Orbit Studios with Michael Brenner, um, with Peter Leviton from Peter Leviton Agency. And this is old Sachi Sachi guy. This is a guy who's recently, you know, authored a lot of great books like Mean People Suck. (laughs) That's a Michael Brenner one. And then Andy is just a wealth of knowledge about what's going on on web. He has an amazing, amazing design studio that does uh, web work, but it is so based in SEO and data. And I mean, he knows how to do it organically without the spend. And those three guys, I think I just sit down and sit back and, and ask all my questions. Besides, they're pretty fun guys. So it'd probably be all right. Sounds like a good lunch to me. And of course, you're going to have to bring your husband's bread, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of required at this point. <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast today and sharing your source system as well as talking about the resources that are available on your website and you know, just giving us a better idea about digital marketing and the things that brands can do to you know, make an impact. I love it. And just thank you so much for having me on. But I've got to tell you, for all of the, you know, your audience, you've worked hard to try and find the right people for your audience, but I'm just going to speak directly to your audience. You need to go rate this show because if this was of any value to you from podcast host to podcast host, it's a lot of time and effort that you know he puts into this. So make sure you do your good deed of the day and go rate the show or maybe share it with someone else. It doesn't have to be my episode. It can be any episode, but um, this is the way these really open and great conversations happen. And I really appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you very much. But to be honest with you, a lot of it's just really the guests, you know, I'm, and <laughs> often I'm just asking questions based on what you're telling me, because I just like to have a good conversation and learn from what you're telling me. And hopefully, you know, you and I can have a little bit of an aha moment and have to have the audience experience that as, along the way. hundred percent. So, Thanks. Thank you. Getting to aha was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.